This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. We are continuing our study in the life of Abraham, and today we're going to be covering two chapters, Genesis 13 and 14, and with me today to discuss the life of Abraham is Mr. Will Bushman. We've already fought through some real technological problems, so this is going to be a good one. Yeah, we thought that our mixer was broken, and Mm -hmm. we're not sure why we need a mixer, but nothing works without it. Yep, (laughs) that's all we know. I am not sure why we can't just plug this into our computer, but it does not work. This this is, without Mark, we are a a struggling crew. (laughs) Just lucky it gets recorded every week. That That is correct. So... Going back and looking at last week, we got introduced to the person of Abraham, who is Abram at this point, or Abram. And when we first meet him, we learn that he's coming out of the Babylonian region. He was in the major city of Ur, which was a really, really wealthy city. It was a city that worshipped the god Nana, which was the god of fertility. Uh, tremendous amount of commerce. This would have been a bustling city, but it gets destroyed by the Elamites, and at some time around that same point, Abram and his family, Terah, and his nephews and his brothers, they bail and they go to the city of Haran, uh, which, again, is a city that worships the god Nana we talked about, which is the god of fertility. Abram's name literally means exalted father, Everything about his life, which you have to pause for a moment and remember, like his dad, Tara, gave him that name. So it's like, this is what I want most out of your life, my son, exalted father. And so you're, you're a disappointment in some sense to your dad. You're a disappointment to your community. You feel like the gods have forsaken you because you are in a cities and you're in these cities that worship gods of fertility. And nothing happens. And so then we talked about how God comes to Abram and he says, hey, leave all this stuff. Leave your father's household and come, follow me, leave this land, go to a land that I'm going to show you, and I'm going to make you a great nation. And then the gospel promise, through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth, which is a wonderful promise of the Messiah that's going to come through the line of Abram. And so we talked about how when Abram left the land of Haran, and he shows up with these two great promises, right? God's going to give him a land, and God's going to give him many children, and he shows up, and both of those promises are suffering barrenness, right? The land is in the middle of a famine. It's not producing life. There's no fertility there, in other words, and Sarah is still barren, and she is not having kids, and it'll be, by the way, it'll be 25 years after God first gives his promise to Abraham before he'll make good on it. And I love that the scriptures are honest about that because God's, his promise isn't false. God does give this land to Abraham's descendants just in a radically different way than I'm sure Abraham was anticipating. And he also provides descendants. I mean, how many people on the face of the planet cry out father Abraham, right? So God made good on his promise, but it wasn't according to Abram's timing. And so 
there's a lot that we learned about last week, and one of the important things was when Abram is experiencing the famine, remember, he's like, what am I going to do here? He goes down to Egypt, which is always the place of death and bondage in Scripture. He goes down there. He betrays his wife into Pharaoh's harem. Pharaoh is giving Abram, after he hears that she's just his sister, not his wife, is giving Abram all the livestock and wealth and just an abundance. And then God comes, defends Sarah, puts plagues on Pharaoh and his household. And Pharaoh's like, get out of here. Like, leave me alone. Why didn't you tell me? And so Abram and Sarah go back up into the promised land, and that's where we pick up on Genesis 13. And we have a wealthy Abram leaving Egypt. Oh, yeah. Because Pharaoh's like, I'm, I'm mad at you. I actually just want you out of this place so fast. I'm not even going to collect everything I gave you. Keep it. Just I don't want to see your face mm-hmm. anymore. Yeah, you get the impression that when when Abram left Haran, you know, he, he's leaving with servants and quite a bit of wealth, actually. So he was, he was well-to-do before he gets to Egypt, but now it's like he's just loaded. He's got a lot. And God's not done blessing his socks off yet. So we'll see that as we get to chapter 13, that Abram was wicked in what he did to his wife, right? I mean, he was. we talked about how he was essentially a pimp and said, you know, yeah, go with Pharaoh, and I'm going to take all of this compensation for my wife being given away. It's a pretty low point in Abram's life. But then when you get to chapter 13, God is not done blessing this household and giving them tremendous wealth. So chapter 13 of Genesis, verse 1, it says, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the Negev. Remember, the Negev is the southern part of Israel. It's desert. and It's just, there's there's nothing there, really. It's, it's desert territory. But who's Lot? This is really important because... Lot is Abram. Abram had a brother whose name was Haran, and Haran died, and Lot was his son. And so Lot no longer has a father. So Abram, in a sense, is basically his adopted father. And so Abram is thinking, well, I don't have descendants. I'm bringing Lot along with me. He'll be my heir, you know, as my nephew. So it says, now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel. So you're getting out of desert and you're getting into nice territory now. As far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. Remember, he pitched his tent there. He built an altar between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there, Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So you get the sense that his sin, his fall hasn't devastated him. He's seen God's faithfulness and how he showed up and delivered Sarah and allowed them to leave with favor and a bunch of blessings. And Abram is getting like, okay, this God has my back and he is worshiping the Lord. He sees God's faithfulness. And it says, and Lot who went with Abram also had flocks and herds and tents. And so he's coming with massive amounts of wealth, which presumably he got from his father who had predeceased him and he'd brought with them. But here's the problem. They're so wealthy that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And so here, here's the, the conundrum, right? How did they get all this wealth? 
by being blessed from God. That's right. Like God has blessed them tremendously. Yeah. And what's what's the response? Like we're so blessed, we've gotten so much money. What has now become the most important thing? Like here, here this is the wild part of this. You have Lot who's looking at Abram, who's like you're you're like my adopted dad, right? Yeah. And you've got Abram who's looking at Lot like, hey, you're you're I'm I'm essentially adopting you as a son, your family. They get loaded with so many possessions that what's their reality now? They got to separate. Yeah, we don't like each other anymore. <laughs> we're we're in conflict because we've been so stinking blessed. And like, I want you to see like the scriptures here are giving us a warning. Like, it doesn't say be careful about wealth. But that's essentially what it's saying. Like Abraham is like, oh, wow, in poverty, I don't trust God to take care of me. So I run down to Egypt, and we're going to see all sorts of calamity comes out of that decision. But now he's got prosperity. And what should his heart be? Like if, if you have a gospel ethic and you've got an abundance of stuff, you want to use your abundance of stuff to bless the person. Right, not just oh, you get out. You're you're keeping me from my ability to get more and more and more and more and more room for my herds and bigger barns. And here you have Lot and Abram, who's like, uh, we got too much wealth. Like, and you're encroaching on my ability to get even wealthier. So we've got to forsake our relationship between each other so that I can have more stuff. You still see that today, right? Like, have you ever? How many times have you seen somebody? Who, whose marriage is wrecked, whose relationship with the children is wrecked because it's like, uh, I don't have time for you or I, I need to chase this career or I need to build bigger industry and more money and, and you start chasing after things. And the same thing that you see here between Abram and Lot, you know, I, my stuff and my pursuit of more is more important than protecting my relationship with you. Yeah, that's probably the hardest thing for families to stay together is wealth. Mm-hmm. Right? If you look at you know the wealthy and the powerful, it's not always the greatest family relationships that you see. Mm-mm. And we're not, I mean, we're talking about like, this is super wealthy for Abram and Lot. So there's no chance. I mean, unless they gave it away, which it doesn't look like they're about to do. But it seems like wealth in the family is one of those poisonous things that I, I'm not saying you can't handle it. What I'm saying is I think it takes real wisdom to do it, and most of us probably lack that wisdom mm-hmm. in that regard. Yeah. And that's that's one of the, you know, I remember reading one of the Puritan theologians. He had a line, and it uses biblical language, but it said, religion begat prosperity. That just means gives birth to, right? So religion gave birth to prosperity. Whenever you see people that behave godly and all that, like prosperity tends to come on the heels of that. And it says, religion begat prosperity, and the daughter devoured the mother. Hmm. And it's like, you know, religion will lead you toward a prosperous life where you experience blessing and the good life, but then the moment that you start getting material possessions, it drives your faith away. Because you think, oh, I, this is the most important, and, and, you know, I am my own God, I'm my own Savior. D.L. Moody has this great quote where he said, we can stand affliction better than we can stand prosperity, for in prosperity we forget God. And that's, that's true all throughout the scriptures. One of the most dangerous places you can ever find a human being is, I got this. If they're saying, like, I'm blessed, I'm self-sufficient, you know, I, I have no need to rely on God, there's no hardship in my life, I got it figured out and dialed in, 
watch out. <laughs> that person is in, in big trouble. Big trouble. Yeah, and I want to let myself off the hook in these conversations because I'm like, well, I'm not that wealthy, da 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 do which Morgan and I are not, you know, between a school teacher and a youth pastor. Yeah, in America. Yeah, yeah, but like, yeah, but we're thinking like, oh, no, we're pretty financially secure, and it's easy even with just our level of it to be like, I mean, there's wisdom and planning, there's wisdom and financial planning, but, you know, I just had a meeting with my financial planner and then since then it's become kind of obsessive almost Mm -hmm. yeah it's become like that thing that like i get a little crazy about like it's one of those things (laughs) that it can plant in it and i can spiral like Mm -hmm. pretty quickly and it becomes like a real hoarder situation like i gotta grab 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 i gotta do 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 and then all of a sudden i wake up and like oh my gosh i've just went insane for like a week and you get annoyed by the relationships that threaten whatever your plans are like no no no, i've got a plan for my life this is where it's going and you're spending too much or whatever like yeah it can become a god yeah there was a great study by the way that was done by gallup in 2009 and and listen to this because it's 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 instructive right the study found that 95% of people making less than $2,000 a year, so we're talking around the globe, felt that religion was a very important part of their daily life. But now if you got to people that were making more than 25000 which is still not, like you would consider that not doing yeah. too well in the United States, right? But the moment that you got north of 25000 that number drops from 95% down to 47%. So what they found is there's a direct correlation between wealth and depending on God for daily provision to your spiritual temperature, right? The, yeah. the poor are far more likely to be very devoted to God and to consider religion and spirituality important, whereas the wealthy tend to forget God. Hmm. And here... You're seeing that. Like, why Why did God make us? God made us. I mean, Westminster Confession of Faith, right? It's we exist to glorify, glorify God, God and to enjoy him forever. And Jesus says, you know, the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself, right? So the, the things that we're put here for are to love God and to love our neighbors. And here you have Abram, the father of our faith, and his blood relative, nephew, that are being torn apart. Well, because of money. It's instructive. Yeah, I just saw yesterday Pew came out, the the research place, um, and they and then this was like the topic they asked. Parents, and it's parents, they have five categories. It's, okay, what do you want from your kids? Mm-hmm. As parents, what if you could pick, they, you want this extremely for them, you want this somewhat or not at all. And the categories are be financially independent, have jobs or career that they enjoy, earn a college degree, get married, and have children. Hmm. So you got to look at those five things and parents were asked, okay, okay, do you want that to be extremely? Like, do you want them to have kids? Mm-hmm. Or is that not a huge deal to you? And the number one thing, 88% of people who voted extremely on one of those categories was be financially independent. Mm. And then very next was have jobs, 88%. <sighs> then earn a college degree was down 41%. Get married was down to 21%. And have children was down to 20%. Wow. So if we're looking at even at the next generation that we are creating, that we're actually just showing them like, okay, hey, this is what matters. Because hmm. financial stability is just a nice term for you want to be wealthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that just shows you where priorities are. The idea of covenants and future generations and marital faithfulness is all bottom of the list. It's all materialism. Yeah. And on that wow. 46% on each of those get married and have children, they said not at all. They don't care about that at all for their children. That's gross. 
Yeah. Sorry to anybody out there who agrees with that, but that's gross. Yeah. <laughs> you can see where we land. On I mean, and the fact that, you know, hey, to have a relationship with Jesus or any, like, that's not even making pews. You know, they're like, Psh, whatever. No, yeah. That's not even a question. Yeah, that's not even Th- part of it. These are like five, like, maybe you should want these things. Yeah. And it was extreme, like, no. Wow. Uh, I remember having a conversation. I'm not sure if I've ever told this story before, but it was super impactful on me. You know, I remember when Caleb was in fifth grade. So, you know, I'm, I'm looking, you know, at whatever, 10, 11 year old at the time, and he's sitting on the couch and we're watching TV and I'm kind of in my own world prepping for something probably. And just out of nowhere, he goes, hey, dad. Yeah. What's up, bud? And he goes, I think I'm going to be a failure in life. And it was like, Ooh. you know, th- th- you're a dad now. You you hear your son say that, and it's like a million like knives. sucks the air out of the Yeah, room. like, oh my gosh, like, why in the world are you saying that? And so I, you know, quickly turned everything off. Yeah. Total Full attention. shutdown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're getting to the bottom <laughs> yeah. of this. And, I, and I'm, I looked at him, and I said, okay, Caleb, I want you to define for me what does it mean to be a failure in life, and what does it mean to be a success in life? And so, hmm. you know, he's in a... He's in a Christian school. He's in a pastor's home. We talk about the gospel probably to an annoying amount, right? And yet when he started talking about the successful life, it was all that kind of stuff. It was yeah. all the stuff, like, you know, the pew poll that you just read. I, you know, I want the job, and I want the money, and I want the house, and I want the car, and I, I want to be successful enough to where somebody's going to want to marry me, and I want all that stuff. And by the way, those desires aren't bad desires, but if you're considering that they measure your worth or your, like you're, you being a success in life. And so we had this long conversation, which I know I've mentioned before on this podcast, where the measure of a success as defined by God is how well you love him and how well you love your neighbor. And so like we started talking about what that life looks like. And by the end of that conversation, it was like he was dancing on sunshine, like because in, yeah. in those categories... He feels good. He knows he's loved by God and he's got a kind soul. And he's, you know, and I'm like, and the ways that matter, man, you're a success. And all of a sudden, he's, he was freed. And of course, he battles that still to this day, as do all of us. But it's like, good grief, this world, it just, it's so insidious how it builds that idea of what's important into us. And it's, it's entirely worldly and it's what you see here. With Abram and Lot, of course I want more, and I'll forsake the most important things to me to get it. And that's one of the struggles that you see right out of the gates in the story. So in verse 7, it says, There was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock at the time the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Remember, these are really wicked tribes. And so Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me. And he, you know, like you think... If this is Jesus talking to Lot, what would he say? Let there not be strife between us. Is he going to say the same thing that Abram says? Abram's like, let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we're kinsmen. So let's separate. I mean, essentially. (laughs) It's like, dope. Is not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. And if you take the right hand, I'll go to the left. So, so you've got Abram who's saying, who comes to this point, and it's kind of like, I don't even know that I'm, I'm right in this, but there's something in me that says that the heart of the gospel should be able to overcome this conflict, to overcome this greed, to be able to work together, to figure it out, to, to forge friendship and peace. But Abram here, and Lot especially, it sounds like, 
is like, yeah, we, we just can't be together anymore. Wealth is too important, so we're going to part ways. It doesn't feel like a gospel solution. Like it's avoiding conflict, but it's still putting money above relationship, which is interesting. And so what God is going to do next is something that if you read right past it, you'll miss something that's a really important principle for life, right? It says, so Lot, so Abraham, you got Abraham who's saying, okay, either, you know, I can take this land, which is fresh out of famine, you know, or you could look over there on the other side of the Jordan and you could have that land. I'll let you pick and I'll take whichever one that you don't want, which is interesting because God had already promised Abraham this land. He said, look around like this is the land I'm giving you. And Abram's like, all right, Lot, I'll let you choose, which again is like, no, Abram. God gave you this land. You can't, you're not allowed to start negotiating it, right? And parsing, you know, parceling it off to someone else. So again, like you you get, God is so faithful. At some point, I'm like, all right, Abram, you're, you're starting to get on my nerves here. <laughs> like, do you believe or not? Yeah, when I read this the first time, though, I was like, oh, Abram's being a nice guy. But now that mm-hmm. you're telling me, I'm getting a different take on and this. And he is. Yeah, at first I was like, oh, that's not like, Abram, you have the right to look at your nephew who you've given everything to, or you've brought along mm-hmm. on this journey and be like, hey, just get out of here. This is what you get. This is mm-hmm. what I'm going to take. I'm going to take whatever land I want and you're going to get the leftover. <laughs> so, I mean, you have like levels of what it could be like to be ethical. Like he could have been yeah. the tyrant that says, well, my my crew is bigger than your crew, so we're yeah, just going to take your this stuff. Out. Yeah. yeah, your stuff's my stuff. So he wants peace. Yeah, he's, he's, but he he's he's achieving peace with no personal sacrifice. That's true. Yeah. So it's like a it's like a civil contract that's ethical, but it doesn't hit the gospel ethic that says, for the sake of this relationship, I'm willing to sacrifice something. Right? There's none of that in Lot or Abram. It's like, we want everything, we want to grow everything, and you're not worth it, so you go over there. You know, it's... Yeah, he's, it's, he's orphaning Lot again. That's right. For his money. That's right. Oh, I mean, dark. in some sense, yeah. Ugh. So, and, and I might be reading too much into that, but I, when I think if Jesus is in the situation that Abram's in, what happens there? Is he like, Lot, you go away. <laughs> you got, I, I got to get more stuff. I got to make room yeah. for my stuff. Or is he going to go the extra mile? And maybe Abram did. We're not told, you know, again, this is just a, it's a summarized narrative. Maybe Lot or maybe Abram did go to him and say, hey, man, like, let's figure this out. And Lot's like, no, my stuff. We don't know. But it's, it's kind of tragic that the relationship gets sacrificed on the altar of possession. Yeah. Um, so, and it drives that point home in the very next line, which is, which is why I think the Lord is kind of drawing our attention to this, right? Because it says in verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the Garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, which is like, why, why would it bring that up? It's telling you, hey, Abram, remember when you sought after wealth, when you sought after comfort, you went down to Egypt, it was really yeah. alluring? And now Lot's making the same decision, like, oh my gosh, like, look at that land over there. It's like the Garden of Eden. It's like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. Um, and it gives us a parenthetical. Of course, this is before, <laughs> before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and made it a wasteland. So verse 11, So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities in the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. So he goes to the city of Sodom, which now archaeologists are telling us Sodom was 
massive back in these days. Five times bigger than the ancient city of Jericho. Huge city for commerce, but exceptionally wicked. And the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And so so this is what you see out of this. Lot's given choices, right? He looks over and he sees Sodom. He knows the reputation. They're, they're incredibly wicked. They're totally against the Lord. The whole land is corrupt and terrible. But, man, it's beautiful, and there's a lot of cheddar over there. <laughs> you know, There's a lot of money to be made. Look at the land. Imagine my crops. Yeah, they hate God, and they're totally dead set against the Lord, but it's the garden, like... And so he takes that, and he's going to suffer for that decision. Hint, hint. So what is God suggesting here? Abram stays in a land that's fresh out of famine. You know, it's, I'm sure it's coming back. Lot looks over and sees a far better option. You know, the, Abram's in the land where he's built an altar, where, he's, where the Lord has promised blessing, where the Lord has done all this stuff. Lot looks over and sees a land that is forsaking the Lord, but it's got wealth. And he decides, I'll take that land. And there is a, a principle here that is really powerful to me. And I think humanity does this all the time. Lot looks over and he sees something that reminds him of the Garden of Eden. But it's the Garden of Eden without God in it. And what does he do? He says, I want that. And Abram is in a land that's coming out of turmoil and he doesn't know provision, and it's, it's got issues, but the Lord is here, and his promise is here. And so you get these two options, these two alternatives that are presented, which, by the way, are always in front of us. You know, you can have the wilderness with the Lord there with you, or you can chase after a culture where the Lord is hated and forsaken, but, man, there's a lot of money there. There's a lot of material mm. prosperity. Which one do you take? Oh, that wasn't rhetorical. <laughs> oh, the one with God. Mm. <laughs> yeah, but the reality is, like, man is always trying to figure out some way to recreate the garden. Like, we want utopia. We we want to figure yeah. out, you know, and that's where communism and Marxism. Mars. And all that, We're going to Mars. Right. We'd make a hell of it <laughs> in a hurry if it's not already. Like. That's the thing, like everywhere where we think, hey, if we just had this, we, we could find happiness. And the reality is if you go, if you went back to the Garden of Eden and it was still beautiful and you could walk right into it, but the Lord wasn't there, it would become a hell. Heaven is wherever the Lord is. Heaven is wherever his faithfulness is. Heaven is wherever his promise, his gospel, his love, his peace, the fruit of the Spirit. Like, that's where you're going to find prosperity. And we as human beings are so dumb that we keep trying to find prosperity in places where the Lord has been dismissed. Hmm. And every time we go there, we find a hellish landscape, right? A hellscape. And it's miserable. And that's exactly what you find at Sodom. It's interesting that in Genesis 13, the, the Bible makes this comparison that when you get to the end, when, when Revelation talks about the great judgment that's coming against from God against the wickedness of humanity and a people that have walked away from him, there's a line in Revelation 13 that draws your mind back to this part of Genesis. Remember, 
you have the scripture saying that the land of Sodom is well watered like the garden of the Lord, and it's like the land of Egypt. But when you jump to Revelation chapter 13, when it describes the great city that's going to be judged, and it's talking about Jerusalem, by the way, here, it says that dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom, and so it pulls Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. Well, where was the Lord crucified? Well, he's crucified in Jerusalem, but in Revelation 13, guess what it calls Jerusalem? It compares Jerusalem, the holy city, to Sodom, where Lot chooses, and Egypt, where Abraham chose. And what it's saying is, if you take even the most holy places and you remove God from them, they become places of damnation. And so it's not about the circumstance. It has nothing to do with that, and it has everything to do with whether or not you have a relationship with God in the middle of whatever your circumstances are. That's where you find prosperity. And so Revelation is even pulling in the holy city that has forsaken the Lord and saying, that's like Sodom, that's like Egypt. The garden without God is not paradise. So then in verse 14, it says, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, he says, lift up your eyes, look from the place where you are, go northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. Like it's just, you can't even imagine what that number is, right? Just innumerable. So that if anyone can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which is, we'll see that that's a very important location several chapters down the road, which at Hebron which, by the way, is where all of the patriarchs are buried. This is going to be where Abram's buried, and, and Sarah, and Isaac, and Rebekah, and Jacob, and Leah. All of them are buried at this location, which becomes a very sacred spot for the Old Testament. And there he built an altar to the Lord. And so now you finish 13, and you've got this animosity that has built between Abram and Lot, and Lot chose Sodom with all the wicked people over there, a city that's going to become synonymous with just super wicked, self-absorbed, uh, hedonistic, all that kind of stuff. Then you get to chapter 14, and it describes this incredible military campaign that kind of comes out of nowhere, and it's going to be a lot of names and a lot of confusing things, and so I'm going to read it. <laughs> and then I'm going to explain it uh, so that you get a better picture of it because there's so many names your brain will want to turn off, okay? And it's okay if it turns off. I'm, I'm going to explain it, but hang with me. So verse 14 starts, In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Shinar is another word for Babylon, so way to the east, Ariok, king of Elisar, Shedaleamar, king of Elam, and which is even further from Babylon to the other side, and Tidal, king of Goyim, which is of the nations. It's like another word for Gentile in Hebrew. It's, so all of these are like massive empire, far away, huge kingdoms, and they're all coming together in an alliance, those four kings. And it says, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom. Well, Sodom's not a massive kingdom. It's a city. Bersha, king of Gomorrah, again a city. Shanab, king of Adma, a city. Shemaber, 
king of Zeboim, a city, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. So you have four kings of major empires, big kingdoms back in the day, that are coming to war against these individual cities. In other words, it is not a contest. <laughs> this, is, this is like the United States, Russia, China, and give me another one, major, like Japan, a major force going up against Fort Lauderdale, Watch Gainesville, you know, like it's, it's major territories against smaller okay. cities. Even though Sodom is a big city, it can't stand a, a candle against Babylon, right? And so all these joined forces in the Valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea, so just right near the Dead Sea, 12 years they had served Shedolaramara, but in the 13th year they rebelled. In the 14th year, Shedolaramara, and the kings who were with him came and defeated Raphaim and Ashtoreth Karnaim and Zuzim and Ham and Emim and Sheva Kiriathaim. You're welcome. And the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. What did I just say, Will? I have no idea, to be honest. <laughs> I'm reading along with you. In other words, they're conquering all these territories, the Amorites, the Amalekites, then the king of Sodom. So now you get those territories that have been demolished, and okay. now the five cities are like, we're going to be next if we don't do something about it. The king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out. They joined in the battle in the valley of Sidim, and they don't stand a chance. Hmm. So I'm just going to skip reading all these names again. The f kings of the four major territories just routed them. So it's four kings against five. Now the Vadi of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, that's tar, and as the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of them fell into this, these tar pits, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy, these four major kingdoms, rout the Amalekites, the Amorites, the major cities, and the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went away. Now here's the question, why didn't they attack Abram? Because he's not there. Well, he's not there, but why didn't they? I mean, he's right across the river. Why didn't they go take him out? They must have heard he's blessed by somebody. Well, maybe. Maybe it was God's sovereignty to, like, shield him, but he doesn't have anything. It's not Sodom. So well, Lot gets attacked, and all of his stuff gets attacked because he's in a city that has a massive amount of wealth. And so it attracts people to invade them. Abram's over in the fields without major cities. Oh, so he has personal wealth, but we're not talking like a big, like he's a big player, but there's not a thousand of him in a city. Yeah, no, he's can't remember. He's camping in tents. Yeah, okay. Lot is like so. He's Ooh. under the radar. Yeah, totally. Wilderness. -y. Totally. All so right. he's safe. They come through and they they capture Lot and his family. They capture all these cities and Lot. all of their wealth. And so it's like by not choosing to be in, in the city. metropolis, <laughs> you know, Abram's actually shielded from these invasions. They don't come to him because there's nothing to take over, and they there. don't even know he's there. That's right. I mean, They're he's like, off the radar. So. Again, you see, like, there's a very strong hint, like, don't chase after wealth. Don't run down to Egypt. Don't run to Sodom. Trust the Lord. Value relationships. Value his covenant. Value his faithfulness more than the pursuit of all this garbage. That's a theme here if you're picking it up. And so it says, the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, all their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot. So now, dun, dun, dun. now now it's gotten personal for Abram, right? Like, you, you just took my nephew, 
who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and they went their way. So Lot and his family are going to be reduced to slaves or sex slaves or wives or whatever, and they are taken away. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. So you're now I want you to imagine this because you're meant to read this story. And if you were living at the time and you understood, like, hold on, this is the king of Shinar, that's like Babylon. Like this is huge, huge territory, like the Hittites, like massive kingdoms in these days. Uh, a servant comes and tells Abram about his nephew getting kidnapped. And you're thinking, what's he going to do? Like, Sodom couldn't stand, <laughs> you know, the Amalekites couldn't stand, the Amorites couldn't stand, Gomorrah couldn't stand, all these cities can't stand, and yet it comes to Abram, and the same guy who was telling his wife in the previous two chapters, hey, tell him you're my sister, because otherwise they might kill me, and you get this picture that Abram's kind of cowardly, now all of a sudden, get this, and when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them. What up? Original 300. It's right. It's for real. For Like, no joke. So Abram takes his 318 men that he is now trained for battle, and he's chasing after whichever one of these empires took Lot. He's, he's on a mission. And it's they original went, Taken, too. This is two movies in one. That's right. So you got Taken and 300. Here Boom. we go. Boom. So, like, this is Abram. Like, you don't ever think about him as being this, like, courageous warrior. He's but pretty old, too, right? Oh, yeah. We're he's still old. talking old. Yeah, he's, he's okay. past 75. Oh, what a guy. So, Sarah is beautiful at 65. Abram's a warrior at 75. Must be shredded. <laughs> this says he divided his forces against them by night. So, he's clever. He waits at night when they're all sleeping and all their swords and armor and everything is put all over the place. And no, these these empires are not expecting ragtag. They've defeated all the major players of the region. And so he and his servants defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. And then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So what's wild about this and what we're to see here is Again, remember what's the main theme here? Don't don't chase after wealth; it can become a curse to you. But now you have Abram, who's willing to lay down his life to go chase after his nephew. We understand that, right? We we get it. Like that's well, it's family, it's blood. But he also rescues who else? Everybody else. The Sodomites, right? We're told that when the, these kings came through Sodom, they took all these huh. people who hated God, who were wicked to the bone. And now you have Abram, who's not only rescued Lot, but he's rescued all of these wicked Sodomites. Let that sink in. And so now he comes back with all of their wealth and all of their possessions, including Lot. And it says this is one of the more famous and bizarre encounters. We talked about this before we pressed record. He's going to meet a guy named Melchizedek. And it's like, what do you do with this? And there's really, really precious truths in this passage. It says... After his return from the defeat of Shedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shiva. That's the king's valley. And so this is right outside Jerusalem, by the way. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And so this, this begs the question, who in the world is this? Like, when you're, when you're looking into the scriptures, Melchizedek becomes this really, really important figure. Um, 
for example, in the Psalms, in Psalm 110, we're told that the Messiah would be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of the Levites, not in the order of Aaron, the first high priest, but in the order of this guy. So when we're told about the Messiah, Jesus, we're told, no, 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 he comes from this dude. He, this, this is the guy, Melchizedek. And, and we're, we're told in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 10, when it talks about the Messiah, we're told that Jesus was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So whoever this guy is in Genesis 14, he shows up and we're told this is really important because Jesus is this dude's order. And so let's let's look at who this guy is. It says that Melchizedek, well, in, even in the name, there is a lot of meaning, right? So Melchizedek comes from two words in Hebrew. The first one is uh, Melech, which is king, and Zadok is righteousness. And so his name literally means the king of righteousness. He's also described as the king of Salem or Shalom, which means he's the king of peace. Do any of these titles make you think of somebody? The king of righteousness, the king of peace. Oh, and by the way, he brought out what? Bread and wine, which is what? Communion elements. It's the communion elements. So here you have the priest, and he's described as the priest of God most high. There's only one figure in all of history that fits all these definitions. The king of righteousness, the king of peace, who's who brings the elements of communion. He's the priest, the high priest of God most high. Well, who is this? Most theologians will tell you that this is a pre-incarnate Jesus. And it says, and Melchizedek blessed him. So this Melchizedek decides to show up outside of Jerusalem, king of righteousness, king of peace, bread and wine, priest of God most high, and he blessed Abram. And listen to what he says. He says, blessed be Abram by God most high. So this guy's got authority to give the blessing of God the Father, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Okay, well, where do you find that? What is that about? Who, who do you give a tenth to? God. Yeah. So, Abram, this is the first time you see a tithe in Scripture. You only give a tithe to God, right? And so that's a hint. He's the king of righteousness, the king of peace, the priest of God most high. He is you know, the one bringing out the communion, who gives the blessing of God, who receives a tenth of everything. It's telling you this priest is standing with the authority of God. So if this isn't Jesus, which I think it's Jesus, pre-incarnate Jesus, it's somebody who has been designated with the authority of God himself standing in front of Abram. What I love most about this that's kind of surprising is Abram does a lot of things that are faithful, right? Yeah. Like if you were to, if you were to put together your top couple of things that Abram will do in his life that show like remarkable obedience and great faith that could be honored by God, like what are the top two? Uh Going to sacrifice his son. All right, sacrificing his son in Genesis 22, like being willing to sacrifice Isaac. That's amazing. What would be? I mean, the first one of just leaving, following yeah, at all. Like, same, same with me. Those would be my two. Like to be able to pick up, leave your homeland, everything, all your comforts, and say, I'm in, God, and I'll follow you wherever. Like, wow, that's amazing. Or being willing to sacrifice your son, wow, that's amazing. But here is where Melchizedek shows up to say, what you just did, 
I want you to know is worthy of my presence, and I personally am going to stand in front of you and issue a blessing to you. Mm. And in a sense, if this is Jesus, I want you to hear what's precious about this. What has Abram just done? Let me, let me, let me just kind of summarize this. Abram has said, I am willing to lay down my life to chase after sodomites. And I'm willing to rescue them from their injustice, to show mercy and compassion, to redeem them, to rescue them, to bring them back home, to give them a fresh start, a brand new beginning. And Jesus sees that, and that's a particularly precious mission to him because he too was willing to lay down his life and to chase after those that were wicked and who hated God. You're, you're listening to them on a podcast right now. Right? And and he gives everything, everything, not just a tenth. He gives everything to purchase and redeem us. And so when he sees Abram do that, like it's not just, okay, you're you're ethical Abram and you showed faith. No, you're willing to risk your life, to lay down your life for those that are that are, you know, lot who just spat in your face, the sodomites who are wicked rebels that you've gone to redeem them and rescue them and lay down your life like Melchizedek it just comes with full praise. Man, blessed be Abram by God most high. That is something that I want to show up for and celebrate. And that's just, it's really cool when you stop and think like Abram is putting himself out there to redeem the, the, the most wicked people that the world was seeing at that time. And so with that, the king of Sodom comes forward and he's like, we agree. <laughs> you know, like we like you too. Yeah. And listen to what he says. He says, give me the persons, but you can take all the wealth for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my, and this is like, man, all right, this is pretty cool, Abram. Now you're redeeming yourself again. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Notice that he's repeating the labels that Melchizedek said when he said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Now Abram's like, no, no, I've taken an oath to God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that's yours, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anar, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. And so what's crazy about this is Abram chases after Lot. He's willing to lay down his life. And out of the deal, he could have had great wealth, but he mm. takes none of it. And in fact, when he has his encounter with Melchizedek, gives away a tenth of everything he has. So this mission cost him something. And when the king of Sodom says, hey, you know, you can take all the money, he says, no, I've sworn to God I won't take a dime. Why? What? Like, I don't know the answer to this, but why would God not want Abram to take a dime for what he had just done at great personal expense to himself. I mean, it's definitely a transformation of who Abram, Abram is. Mm -hmm. And even like it makes sense if he doesn't want a bunch of people walking around Sodom being like, well, we made that guy rich because God's mm -hmm. the one who's making him rich. God's the one who's pouring out blessings. So he's kind of living that life that no one can speak ill of him even. Mm -hmm. Amen. So you, you can't be bought. Right, yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to take all this unjust, wicked city's money because I will never be somebody who allows you to say that you own me. 
Yeah, it's also kind of blood money now that you think about some. <laughs> yeah, you know? right? Yeah, plus, I mean, another thing that you could think about is if we were out doing evangelism and we, you know, let's say, you know, figuratively, spiritually speaking, we're chasing the sodomites who are wicked, who hate God, and we redeem them and we rescue them and we bring them back home and then we say, all right, yeah, yeah, it's worth it. Give me some, give pay me some up. pay up. Yeah. What does that say? It, it says your salvation. It's transactional. It's transactional. It costs you something. Yeah. But God comes to Abram, who's just rescued these people, and he says, it's important that it cost them nothing, hmm. right? This is a free gift of God's people to the most far off, and he wants them to know that grace is a gift. God's deliverance and his salvation is a gift. It is not something that you can earn or deserve or pay off. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, there's a number of reasons. He doesn't want the kingdom, the king of Sodom to, to own Abram or to have influence over him going forward. He didn't want any witnesses like you talked about to say, oh, yeah, Sodom made Abram rich. No, the Lord is going to make Abram rich and has made Abram rich. And then the last one we just talked about is this, this is a gift, you know? As a church, as the people of God, like this is one of my favorite moments that you see from Abram because it is, I think, one of the one of the closest, and we overlook this passage all the time, but it's one of the most Christ-like things that you'll find Abram doing. You know, I'm willing to die. I'm gonna I'm gonna take my 318 men, <laughs> a ragtag group of you know villagers, and we're gonna chase after a major empire and a major king. And in the middle of the night, we're going to be willing to lay it all down. And we're not told how many he lost, if anyone died, but he rescues a nephew who had spat in his face. So remember the division, like Abram was saying, like, I'm not willing to figure this out for the sake of my money. And so they separate. Well, now you have Abram doing the exact opposite to where he's like, I'll give it all. I'll give my very life to redeem you, even though you have run away from me. And I will chase after even the sodomites with God's favor and deliverance um, to bring them back at great cost to myself. And I refuse to be enriched for doing so. And we're going to close. We're done with chapter 14, but I'm going to steal the very first verse of chapter 15 because it is so important to me. You got to think, you know, Abram has just annoyed one of the great empires of the day. So you have to think Abram's going, they're going to come for some vengeance. Yeah, like right? we got to get out of here. <laughs> they kind of know where I'm from, yeah. right? Um, so he's living with that fear. He's living with the fear of, you know, Sodom. Are, are they going to be offended that I wouldn't take their money? And I kind of insulted them even saying that I wouldn't take their money. I've, I've just given away a tenth of my wealth. And Abram is learning a lesson from God that material junk and like trying to earn your safety and security in this world doesn't come from Sodom. It doesn't come from Egypt. It doesn't come from getting bigger crops or, or more herds and all that stuff. 15.1 is where Abram learns his lesson. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And it's like God saying, you want to know what all this was about? Yeah. Here's your wrap up. Here's the wrap up. This is what I want you to learn from all this trauma and hardship, Abram. Listen, listen to these words and receive these kind of as our benediction of this episode because these words of God come to you too, and they're all over the Psalms. He says, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. 
your reward will be very great. And so here you have God saying, you know, all the things that you're afraid of, all these circumstances, the empires, the things that are coming against you, who are they when you consider that I am your shield? Do you ever ever think of God as literally your shield? Like when when life throws its mess at you, God's like, no, I got this. I'm your shield. I mean, that's that's wild. Um, I love in the Psalms where it talks about that God delights to sing over us, that he surrounds us. I Like, that's cool. God surrounds us with shouts of deliverance. It's the same concept. It's that same idea. What can the world do to us when the God of the universe is saying, yeah, you might face some tough circumstances like Abraham. Trust me, I'm mm-hmm. your shield in the middle of it all. I'm surrounding you with shouts of deliverance, and I am going to be your very great reward. Like if we just preach that to ourselves and believe that in the middle of the hardships, like God, you are my shield and you are my reward. What more could I want? Hmm. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, next time we pick up in chapter 15, and this is one of my very favorite chapters in scripture. It is incredibly beautiful and very weird. (laughs) There is a lot of weird that comes in 15. But when you understand what it's getting at, it is mind-blowing, and it makes you see God's covenant in an incredibly beautiful, beautiful light. And so we will pick up with Genesis 15 next week. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a lot of fun walking through the life of Abraham. We hope that it's been a blessing to you and edifying to your soul, and that you can see that the, the main message in all this is God is our source of satisfaction. It's his faithfulness. It's his covenant. He is our shield. He is our reward. And we can busy ourselves making a lot of lesser things our high priority. And every time we do, we just make a mess of things. And so God is teaching Abraham, and hopefully through Abraham, he's teaching us. He's our shield, and he is our very great reward. Have a great week. We will see you next time on the Out of Water Podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.